Welcome to Harvest Valley Worship Center's Sermon of the Week. You can discover more about our church, pastors, and special guests at hvwc.com. We hope that you are blessed by today's message. A couple that is more faithful than these two to do what God tells them to do. So I'm sure what they have is going to be very good. Ready? Before we start, um, is Annalie in the room? There she is, still back there. I'm going to ask Annalie to come give you a little update on Chris and Mika's health. She's been pretty close to all of the details there and knows them more than I do, so she's going to update you on where they are. Hello, hello. Um, so good news. Um, Chris definitely has turned the corner. Um, yeah, right. Um, he's still in oxygen on and off, but his oxygen levels are staying good. They're solid. They're not dropping anymore. Um, and he's able to be up a little bit and around and doing things. I was able to see his face from six feet away, um, yesterday and he looked good. He looked very alive, which is really nice. Um, Mika's not feeling so well, though. Um, so far, it looks like just a, you know, you spend two weeks without sleeping a whole lot and you get some symptoms, right? So keep, keep both of them in prayer. Christopher continued healing for um, restoration of his lungs. He still has a little trouble breathing. Um, there's a heaviness there from the double pneumonia. And then just for Mika to have a strength in rest so that she can really be restored because um, she's poured out so much, not just for her own family over the last two weeks and, you know, watching all night and sleeping when she can, but also for her patients that she's still trying to care for um, and, you know, other people that she knows in our congregation or elsewhere. Um, but, yeah, so good, good news there. Hallelujah. Um, as we mentioned earlier, to just keep everyone lifted up in prayer, we don't have time to go through all of the names, but there's a good dozen people that are walking through something from a health perspective or a life perspective. And, you know, James t tells us, you know, the prayers of a righteous person, a righteous person are powerful and effective. And so those prayers, nothing that we shoot up to God <laughs> gets unanswered. It's all answered. All right. Um, I was looking forward to uh, sharing with you today and in the process of preparing for this, it became apparent that we needed to do this together. And so we are, and this one's taken a while to kind of put together. Sometimes a message just comes to you and it's there, you write it down and it goes, and other times you, where are you going, Lord? What do you want to do with this? This is one of those that I had to work through a little bit to kind of get the sense of where we wanted to head. But it's a special time for us right now, and I want to share a bit of testimony. Myself and then Kathy follow up uh, with her a bit of testimony for you as well, because we're, in the, we're at the point in our life where we're celebrating 40 years as being believers. 40 years. December 27th, 40 years ago, I made that decision for Christ. And for me, that's a really, in 40 is a pretty special number in, in the scripture. 
a lot of different significance around 40, and for me, this has been really significant. God has been speaking a lot to me about it in the sense that, you know, highlighting it, highlighting, highlighting some things about 40 years. And so Christmas time seems like a really appropriate time to share a bit of testimony around that. So I'm going to share the testimony of how I came to know Christ. I'm going to share that portion of that testimony. Testimony is an ongoing thing in our lives, right? We should always have a current testimony. What's God doing in our lives now? Testimony isn't just about how we came to know Christ. Testimony is what he's doing in our lives. And a testimony, what does that do? It, it is declaring what God is doing, and it gives him permission to do it again. Somebody can pick up on that and go like, wow, Lord, can you do that? You did that in his life or her life. You can do that in my life, right? So testimony is something that is really ongoing. It's an ongoing aspect of our lives. But I'm going to go back to that initial decision. That's what we're both going to share before we get into the message for today. I grew up in a Polish Catholic church in Detroit, Michigan. My dad is Polish, and my mother is Finnish. Uh, and so we grew up in a Polish Catholic church. All the services were in Latin, in Latin. I didn't understand a thing. You know, speaking tongues and all that sort of thing. I did not understand the tongue of Latin. And so to me, the Bible was this thing out here. It was like it was not to be understood. It was only given for, are we scratching here somewhere? It was only to be given for people who were called to do ministry, right? The Bible was only for those people, you know, only a priest because only he could understand uh, that language. However, you know, in my life, I cannot, I, there were things that became real to me as a child in the Catholic Church. I, in fact, I can't remember a time when there were four things uh, that I did not know, or I did not know these things. And those four things were I knew God existed. I can't remember a time in my life where I did not know that God existed. I knew that Jesus was his son, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that the Bible was his word. I've never struggled. I've never, I, it's hard for me to relate to people who have struggled with that because I've never had that struggle in my life. I've never been in a place where I've doubted it. I've always known it. And so I'm thankful for those Catholic roots. I'm thankful that I received that in the Catholic Church. I did not know, however, that there was a need to make a personal decision for Jesus. That's what I didn't know. Uh, for most of the Catholic Church, that is something that you automatically receive by becoming a member of the church. You get that with joining the Catholic Church. Not all parts of the Catholic Church are that way. Some parts of the Catholic Church are what we call charismatic, and there are born-again believers in some of those uh, streams. But primarily, no, that's not true. When we moved to Colorado, when I was just before teenage years, we started attending Catholic churches there in Colorado, and they used an English translation of the Bible, something more along the King James Version, you know, and for me, okay, it's still Eng it's English, that's better. But for those of you who are King James fan, I'm not putting it down, but these and vows just did not connect with me. They still don't. They still don't. I just like, I thank thee, God, you know, whatever. And for those of you who pray that way and love that, I am not, I am not putting that down. It just does not connect with me. That's not where I am. I need something more in plain English, right? 
And so the Bible still ended up being something, well, it's a little bit more understandable, but I still don't know how close I want to get to this thing because what does that mean, you know? So I ended up going to university in my senior year in my bachelor's work at university. There was a new professor on campus in the horse area, and I was doing uh, a lot of my education around horses. I uh, grew up with some horses, and so I uh, was involved in some things horse-related on campus. And there's a new professor on campus. I'm walking down the hallway one day, and he says, Jim, come on in here. And I thought, how does he know me? You know, we've never met. And I said, okay. He says, you got a few minutes. And I said, yeah, I got a few minutes. He says, I'm putting together a course outline here for my introduction to the horse or intro to horse management class. And I need a little help with it, and I'm wondering, I got a lab with it, would you be interested in being a TA, a teacher's assistant for that? And I've been involved in some different things related to teaching, and that was kind of one of my interests. I had actually tested out of that class because of all my background with horses. What am I doing? What's going on? I do not. It's over there. I will move. Back up. Might be a dead spot. Here we go. I'm in the dead zone. <laughs> and I said, you know, yeah, I'd be interested in being a TA. I would, I would love to do that. And, and so he says, but wh what do you think should be the first topic in our course outline? And I had read some textbooks and stuff on horses as, as we grew up with them just to learn some things. And the textbooks that I had, the first chapter and the first section was on the evolution of the horse. And I said, I don't know, how about evolution of the horse? That's where all the books start. Why not start at the beginning? You know, and he says, so do you believe that evolution, do you believe in evolution? And I said, well, it's a fact, isn't it? And he says, actually, no, it's a theory. And when you, Ben Crawford was this professor's name, when you got Ben started, the next thing you know, you got another hour with Ben. And it was fun. It was always good. But that time with Ben was just something that you could spend. So we, w we were talking about lots of different things, but looking at, you know, his, his relationship with God in terms of how he looks at evolution. And so that's the first time that I came into that place. That this thing might not be a fact. Ben invited me to come to uh, the church that he was attending. Uh, and so I started going to some of the services that were there, started going there, and there was a pastor who, who uh, was more teaching in his focus. He was also more evangelistic in his focus, and he often had, uh, some of us might think of it as an altar call, there wasn't really an altar there, but he would have a call for people to make a decision for Christ. He would have that call. It might be better if I just took a mic. Yeah. I'm going to do this by mic so we don't have all that scratching. So we often had a call, and that call was like, uh, see, this is not working. How are we doing? All right. <laughs> So he would do that, that call a variety of ways. See, I am in a spot. He would do that call in a variety of ways. Sometimes with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Sometimes he would have you more openly make that decision, whatever. He just had a variety of ways in which he was asking people to make a decision for Christ, right? 
Well, one of the other things that this pastor did is he used a more recent version of the Bible. The NIV had a new international version that was just three years in existence at that time. It's dating myself all the way back to that point in time. And uh, he was reading, and he would do his messages out of that. And I'm going like, I can understand this. I can understand. The Bible is understandable. It's something that I can understand. You don't have to go to some seminary. You don't need to get some training in order to understand it. It can be read, and you can understand it. And that, to me, was just amazing. That was amazing, given my, the, the Latin and the King James stuff. And I was like, ah. I just let everybody else read it, you know. So being able to read that for myself was just powerful. During this time, I'm helping Ben TA his, I'm TAing his class, and Ben would often forget to bring something. He was forgetful. I am blessed with, I'm using the word blessed, <laughs> with people who tend to forget things around me. <laughs> and sometimes it could be terribly frustrating, but sometimes it could be terribly fun too. And uh, Ben would often forget something. So, Jim, I need you to run back to my house. He lived a couple miles from the campus. I need you to pick up this bit for me. Or I left this halter sitting there. Or there's a saddle that it's on the kitchen. It's on the, on, the t on, a, on the kitchen chair there. Can you go grab that and bring it? So I would get into his truck. He'd give me the keys to his truck, get into his truck, and I would drive it over to his house and bring that back. Well, when I got into his truck, it was always tuned to Christian radio. Every time. I thought, this guy must really believe this stuff. You know, like he's listening to Christian music all the time. And you all need to know that at this point in my life, I had never encountered a born-again believer in my entire life until that point in time. Until that point in time, I never encountered a born-again believer. Or if I did, I didn't know who they were. But this man lived for Jesus. He radiated joy about his relationship with Christ. And he loved to talk about him. And he loved to share his faith with people. He did. That man, that man was an example to me. That man was an example of what it means to be sold out. Now, I don't just have Jesus just because, oh, I get him and, and I'm going to have a little bit of him. No. Jesus is my life. Jesus is my life. So eventually he invites me to come to a Christmas banquet, go to the Christmas banquet. And at that Christmas, I didn't make the decision then, but at the Christmas banquet, I, you know, I'm ready to make this decision. I'm ready to commit my life to Christ. And in the following Sunday, when he came and he had that time for a decision, and I thought, I don't know if it's the following Sunday or maybe a couple, because I was waiting for that service where your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. You know, I wanted this to be private, just between you and me, God, you know. So he had one of those services, and I thought, okay, good. Raised my hand, made that decision. Well, I'm on the way out, walking out. Ben and his wife, Jane, are behind me. And I'm walking out, and the pastor goes, just puts out his hand like this. Welcome to the kingdom of God, he says. And I shake his hand. I'm like, couldn't keep that private very long. <laughs> Ben's standing behind me, and he says, you didn't. And I said, yes, I did. I would made my decision for Jesus at that time. You know, I'll be forever grateful for Ben Crawford in, in my life. He went home to be with the Lord a number of years ago, and I had the opportunity to one of the eulogies um, for his service. I told my wife, I said, whenever this man dies, I want to be there. I want to honor him in my life. You know, 20-some-odd years of not 
being exposed to any born-again believer, it's like we are salt and light out there, people. We are salt. We may be the only person that anybody encounters uh, with Jesus with skin on. We may be that only person. And when God's prompting you to share some of him with them, be it in an action that you do or be it in something you share verbally, man, you don't know. You just don't know what that might, how that might impact a person's life and change it. Because that man made a huge difference in my life. I could the testimony made a huge difference in my life for quite a few years. He was a mentor in my life and launched me in a, in a career that I never would have been launched in had it not been for him. This is the value of relational investment. That's discipleship, people. That's how we disciple others. We, re, we invest relationally in people's lives. Jesus in us and through us as we minister and work with people. And so he showed me what that decision was and what it looks like. And I've never looked back. All right, <laughs> my turn. Um, yeah, so I grew up in the Lutheran Church, so similar to Roman Catholic, but not, you know, not quite as liturgical, maybe, uh, although there was a lot of liturgical stuff in it. Uh, went through catechism, learned, you know, all, all the good stuff, you know, about God, about Jesus, about what, you know, he did on the cross, why I needed him, but it was all head knowledge. It wasn't a heart knowledge. So, you know, went off to college, met this fabulous young man who was the president of the Horseman's Club. I said, I think I need to get to know this guy. <laughs> so one night, everybody went out to dancing after the meeting, and I went along and got to dance with him, and pretty soon we started dating and everything. And then uh, I had gone home for Christmas. And I come back from Christmas break, and I'm like, Something's changed. <laughs> you know, this is not the same guy I left behind. And he's like, yeah, you know, he's sharing what had happened to him. And, and you know, we'd gone to this banquet and, and, you know, found out more about, you know, making Jesus, you know, Lord of his life rather than just, you know, somebody we pray to. And um, so I was like, okay, well, I'll go to church with you and check this out. <laughs> and um, I don't know how many weeks in I, I made a similar decision myself. But, um, yeah, you know, the, the, the change was so apparent in him that I knew something, um, yeah, huge had happened. That it wasn't something that, you know, you could just suddenly, you know, be different. There, there was such a change that it caught my attention. Yeah, so like, like I said, a, a few weeks later, I made a decision to follow the Lord, too. It wasn't um, as, I don't know, public, maybe, <laughs> as his. You know, I kind of did it on my own. But, um, you know, we, we got grounded really quickly in a good Bible church. Um, the church that we were attending was very strong in the Word. Um, we went through a Navigators 2-7 class. A couple of them, actually, got a really good foundation um, of the Word. So that was a valuable experience. And one of the things I want to communicate about this, Jesus doesn't just save you, he's Lord. It's just not a ticket to heaven. 
It's a way of life. It's a relationship for life. All right, so we're going to do a little shared message here this morning. I'll start out with a little introduction, then we want to share some passages of Scripture, and then Kathy's got part of a message that she'll share, and then I have something. So Christmas is the season in which we as Christians traditionally celebrate the birth of Jesus. We don't really know when he was born, and likely wasn't in December uh, at that time of the year, but we don't know. It's just a time that was chosen somewhere in history as a date in which that people would choose to celebrate that birth. Not all facets of Christianity celebrate his birth or even celebrate it at Christmas time. Um, but it is a time that many Christians do. And both the book of Matthew and the book of Luke contain an account of Jesus' birth, and that's what we'll share with you next. So the first one is found in Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And then he gave him the name Jesus. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room, no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around him, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Both accounts recount that he was to be given the name Jesus. In Matthew 1, verses 20 through 21, it provides more detail, saying that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and told him that Mary had conceived a child in her womb under the power of the Holy Spirit, and that he was to name him Jesus. The name Jesus means the God who saves, or the Lord is salvation. Matthew also records another interesting detail about Jesus. He would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That he would be called Emmanuel is a fulfillment of a prophecy given by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So why two names? The angel of the Lord instructs Joseph to name him Jesus, while the prophecy says that he will be called Emmanuel. Jesus was a relatively common name given to children during that period of time, and it's still fairly common among some Hispanic cultures today. During biblical times, the names had meanings that the parents and, and parents often chose a name that reflected an attribute of God and to remind the people of that attribute. Thus, giving a child the name Jesus was a reminder to the people that it is God who saves his people and that he is the one who is their deliverer. The prophecy in Isaiah takes this role as a deliverer a step further, and this is what sets Mary's child apart from all the other children named Jesus. Since this baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the child would literally be God with us. God himself was entering humanity. Jesus would be literally a representation of God in the flesh, and in this form, he would redeem humanity. His death on the cross would be the sacrifice that would save the people from their sins. Not since before Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden had he been this present with his people. During Old Testament times, God was present in the Ark of the Covenant, and he would occasionally visit his people through angels or the Spirit coming upon them. However, with the birth of Jesus, he was coming in human form. His very own son would come to live among the people. After his death, God would present his people, would be present with his people in a new way. He would give his Holy Spirit to every individual who places their faith in Jesus and what was accomplished on the cross. This Holy Spirit would enter and reside within, not just among God's people. God would now be personally and continually present within each of his people for the entirety of their life on this earth. So how does Jesus save people from their sins? How does he do that? 
Well, let's first answer the question, what is sin? What is sin? Sin is anything that is contrary to the will of to the will and the heart of God. Sin is anything that is contrary to the will of God and to the heart of God. The heart of God in the Old Testament was expressed through what? It was expressed through the law, right? So sin is anything that is contrary to the law, but that is God's heart. That is a representation of his heart and his nature that comes through there. It is anything we think, say, or do that is not in alignment or anything we fail to think, say, or do that would align with his will and his heart. So anything that we do that's not in alignment, anything that we, don't, that we fail to do that's not in alignment with him, with his heart and his will, is sin. Second, why did Jesus need to save his people from their sins? Why was that necessary? Because God desires a relationship with each of us. He desires a relationship with humanity, both now and for eternity. He created us for companionship. He created us to be lifelong with, he created us to be present with him for, for our lives and throughout eternity. But God's holiness and his purity prevents him from having a relationship with anything that is unholy or impure. Because of God's nature, because he is holy, because he is pure, he cannot have a relationship with anything that is unholy or that is impure. And no one lives a perfect life. No one lives a perfect life. Because our heart and its desires were contaminated by sin. It's contaminated by the sin, that nature that came through Adam. When sin entered the world through Adam, that nature is passed on to us from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. It's an inclination of our heart, and that inclination has subsequently been passed down through each generation, and it causes us or results in us making choices that are not in alignment with God's will and with his heart. We make choices that don't line up with his holiness and with his purity. And this sin literally separates us from God, both in the moment and for eternity. It separates us from him. So then back to the original question. How does Jesus save people from their sins? He does this through something the Bible calls redemption. Redemption. And what is redemption? couple of definitions here. Author Jack Zavada defines redemption this way. Redemption is the act of buying something back. Redemption is the act of buying something back or paying a price or a ransom to return something to your possession. In biblical times, it carried the meaning of freeing someone from chains, prison, and slavery. That's a good definition. I'm going to read that again for you. Redemption is the act of buying something back or paying a price or ransom to return something to your possession. In biblical times, it carried the meaning of freeing someone from chains, prison, or slavery. The New Bible Dictionary says this about redemption. Redemption means deliverance from some evil by payment of a price. So in our modern day, if a child is kidnapped, you pay the ransom, there would be, that would be an act of redemption than if you got that child back. God has purposed redemption from the evil of sin. He created us to have a relationship with him for eternity. And sin entered the world. He wants that relationship. 
he is the one taking the initiative here. God is taking the initiative. He's creating a way for us to come back and to restore relationship with him. And he's also not just from sin itself, not just from that, nature, uh, that sin nature that's there, but also from the consequences of that sin. The chains, the prison, the slavery of guilt, shame, condemnation. Things that we all can relate to in life. Have you ever experienced guilt? God, I feel so guilty for having done this or so guilty for not having done this, or shame, God, I did this, and I just feel such shame. No believer should act in this way. No person should act in this way, and there's tremendous shame. And with that comes condemnation. I can't, and I don't measure up. I can't, and I don't measure up. In the Old Testament, God provided a sacrificial system to deal with the consequences of sin. But it was an imperfect system and was really ineffective against the power of sin. All it did was just pay the penalty, and these had to be offered on a regular, ongoing basis. However, Jesus lived in perfect alignment with God's will in his heart. And then he chose to become the perfect sacrifice. He chose to be obedient to God's heart. He chose to be obedient to his will, and he surrendered his life on our behalf. He surrendered it by his death on the cross, by his crucifixion. He went there to become the perfect lamb that was the perfect sacrifice. Once for all, once for all, we no longer live in a system where we have to offer sacrifices for all time. We come under a system where we place our faith in what Jesus has done, and that sacrifice was perfect. It not only took away the penalty of sin, it took away the power of sin. So sin no longer dominates, no longer needs to control what we do. So how do we appropriate redemption? How do we appropriate that thing we call redemption for our lives? How do we appropriate that? It's by something we call faith. Faith is a way of placing trust. It's not a trust in your own ability. It's a trust in what he's already done. It's a trust in a finished work that's already completed. It's not my ability to live righteously or live in right relationship with God. It's my faith in Jesus, his power within me, the living Jesus within me, the Holy Spirit that's within me, to live according to his heart and according to his will. Choosing a relationship with Jesus is the pathway, is the first step in the pathway to redemption. And when we make that choice, with it comes a new heart. One that is uncontaminated by that sin nature. And it frees us to make choices that align with his will and with his heart. i share a couple of verses around that. Romans 10, 9 through 10, out of the New International Version. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Ezekiel 20, 36, 26, out of the New Living Translation. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. 
I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. The pathway to redemption also requires confession and repentance, which are both necessary when we make a choice for Jesus and when sin shows up in our lives after that choice. If we don't think after making that choice we sin, we're deceiving ourselves. <laughs> we all do. We're still going to make choices because we're in that process. We're, we're justified. That means when we make that decision, God puts us in right standing before him, but we still have this process that's called sanctification in which that the image of Christ is being formed in us, in which Christ is being formed in us, and along the way, we're going to do things that aren't right. We are going to sin. We are going to do things that are contrary to his will and things that are contrary to his heart. Confession is openly acknowledging that you have sinned. It's an open acknowledgement. God, I've sinned. Or sometimes we do it with people. James says to us, confess your sins one to another. You know? So let's say I'm meeting with Terry. Someday, Terry, I need to confess something to you. Sometimes God asks us to make that confession to others, and sometimes we just do that strictly with him. But it's an open acknowledgement. Repentance is a choice to turn away from that sin and to actively realign your heart and your choices with his will and his heart, resulting in a changed life. We turn away from one thing and turn towards the other. We turn away with partnering with living according to this, and we turn towards living this direction. So the fruit of repentance is a changed life. It isn't, Lord, I'm sorry, bless me so I can keep moving on, you know. Lord, I confess I did wrong. I choose not to do this. I choose to move this direction. And if it hasn't gotten to your core, you're going to see that sin show up in your life again. There may or may not be tears with it. Repentance doesn't always have to have tears. It can, and, some, and oftentimes it does. Lord, I'm so sorry, you know, like I have really hurt your heart. For me, that's one of the things I just, I really struggle. Um, not struggle with confession or repentance. What I struggle with is the fact that I have done something that hurts his heart. Papa, I do not want to hurt your heart. I don't want to do that. I know how tender his heart is. I know how he feels when, he, when sin is present. And Lord, this grieves you. This grieves you. And the last thing I want to do is grieve you. So Father, I confess, I freely confess that. And I choose to turn from this and to turn towards you. A couple of verses around this. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let me read that again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. This is God's justice. And will forgive us our sins and purify us from a little bit of our unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. Acts 26.20 20, out of the Passion. For it was in Damascus that I first declared the truth, and then I went to Jerusalem and throughout our nation and even to the other nations, telling people everywhere that they must repent and turn to God and demonstrate it with the changed life. 
And then Proverbs 28:13 out of the NLT. People who conceal their sins will not prosper. Your sin's going to find you out. It is going to cause your life not to prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, that is repent, turn, they will receive mercy. What's God's judgment for confession and repentance? Mercy. Mercy. He does not bring the hammer down. How many of us live in a place where we think, you know, if I confess this, God, I'm going to bring this to you. No, I'm just waiting for you to bring the hammer down. And all he does is bring his love. All he does is just say, I love you. Thank you for trusting in what my son has done for you. In Hebrews, it says, it's been a verse for me, a lifelong verse. You know, uh, um, Hebrews, it says, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember it right now. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I used to look at that verse, Lord, like, oh, you see this stuff. Everything's laid bare. I know it. You see it, man. Judgment, you know, like, um, you're ready to do something here. Like, I, I really need, you know, really, you're going to be angry with me or you're angry with me right now. It's the farthest thing from it. The farthest thing from it. He sees the woundedness and he sees the hurt and all he has is compassion. All he has is compassion. He just comes with his heart. I see this already. I see it. So why not just confess it? Why not just openly confess it? Because I already see it. Just come to me. But do we know his true nature? Do we know his true nature? That he is a loving, forgiving, merciful God. He is just, but that justice was rendered on the cross. All of his wrath was poured out there. Not here. So what is the fruit of redemption? What is the fruit of redemption? When we confess and repent of our sins, we're brought into a restored relationship with God. When we confess and repent, redemption's possible. And we're brought into a restored relationship with God. And those sins no longer have the power to keep us in bondage. No longer do they have the power to bring guilt, shame, condemnation. We've been set free. There's no more chains. There's no more prison. In addition to this, God no longer remembers those sins. This is one of the things he's just been making so clear to me here recently. He no longer remembers those sins. It's as if they've never happened. Righteousness is restored. Purity is restored. This means both from God's perspective and ours. Both God's perspective, what he sees, and it should be our perspective as well, that the enemy can no longer use those sins to bring guilt, shame, or condemnation. There is no double jeopardy in the kingdom of God. You know what double jeopardy is? It's in our constitution. You can't be tried twice for the same crime. God does not try us twice. And so when guilt or condemnation and, and uh, shame or whatever, if that comes, if that comes and you've confessed and you've repented to it, guess where that needs to go? It won't. It just needs to go. But it needs to be banished. Because who's bringing it? It isn't God who's bringing it. It's the enemy who's bringing that.
God's full judgment for sin was born on the cross. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus pay enough of a penalty? He paid it all. So why do we sometimes get into that place where I need to pay something? I need to do more. I need to pay something here. You know, we see this. We have this guilt and this shame that's in front of us. We have this condemnation. Yes, Lord, that's what I deserve. Yeah, well, that's what you deserve. But it was all given here on Jesus. He took all of that for all time. His penalty, he paid that penalty. It was complete. It was full. It was entire. There wasn't anything lacking in terms of God's judgment for sin on the cross. Nothing was lacking. Zero. Let's look at a couple of verses around this. Colossians 1, 21 through 22 in the Passion. Even though you were once distant from him, living in the shadows of your evil thoughts and actions, he reconnected you back to himself. He released a supernatural peace to you through the sacrifice of his own body as the sin payment on your behalf so that you would dwell in his presence. And now there is nothing, nothing between you and Father God. There is nothing between you and Father God. For he sees you, he sees you as holy, flawless, and restored. This is what redemption does. Let me read that last sentence. And now there is nothing between you and Father God. There's no barrier. For he sees you as holy, flawless, and restored. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 12 in the NIV. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his way to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. I'm going to do this like Graham Cook, as some of you know him. Slow to anger. Need to draw that one out. Slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. North and south, we have the poles, right? North pole, south pole. South pole. We kind of know north and south. You can only go so far north. You can only go far, so far south. But east and west is kind of one of those things you can cut your mind. You kind of think of it this way. You can just keep going. He's saying that when we confess and repent of our sins, where do, where do they go? As far as the east is from the west, like, they're gone. They're gone. I was doing this with Kathy as we were talking the other morning. I said, the best way I think I can illustrate this is this way. He takes this thing that was right in front of us. This is my sin, Lord. This is my sin. This is my sin. 
and it's screaming guilt. It's screaming condemnation. It's screaming shame. And when we confess and repent, he does this with it. He takes it out of our view. He does that for himself. He takes it out of his view. He no longer sees it. Our struggle sometimes is we want to keep holding it here. We want to keep having it out here and say, but God, but God, you know, I did this. But God, this is what happened in my life. I forgave you. And because I forgave you, I remove it as far as the east is from the west. I no longer see it. I'm inviting you to do the same. By faith, I no longer see it. Let's take an example of something that might be extreme, but still very real. Somebody kills somebody. Mass murderer. Let's look at that one. Mass murderer comes to Christ. Is that person, when they repent and confess, just as saved as anybody else? And can they take all of those people that they and take that sin, can he put it behind them? Can they do that? Can they remove it? Because God's removed it. They can remove it. And then can we, as people, allow them to do that? We had somebody come to a ministry. We were, uh, I was uh, in Bolivia. I was the ministry team at one time, and we were doing some ministry around revival, uh, sowing some seeds of revival in Bolivia, and we had a pastor's conference. And in that pastor's conference, there was a person that had gone to jail for murder had gone to jail for murder, and because there are more lax in the prison system there in terms of they don't have, they have high security, but it's not so high security that a person can't ever get out, they had made an arrangement for this guy that had committed murder to come to the conference. He had accepted Christ during his prison term. He's about halfway through his prison term. He had accepted Christ, and over half of the prison population came to Jesus because of this guy. And he wanted to come and to be ministered to by our team. I'm going like, this guy's got half the prison population following him. He needs to come speak at our conference. We need to be ministered to by him. And they brought him, and we were able, we were, we were able to pray for him, and there were things that God wanted to do in his life. But that's the nature of what God has done here, is could somebody do something so heinous that they now could be part of the family again? Would we welcome them? Would we? Has God, has God removed it to that extent? Has he? How much do we really believe his word? How much do we really believe it? Because to know how much we really believe it, it gets tested. Things come into our life and it tests us. So how much do you really believe that? Two more verses. Isaiah 118 in the NIV. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be, shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. At that time in history, there was nothing to get the stain out. And so when a lamb was sacrificed, that blood stained things, right? And so it was hard to get red dye. In particular, it was hard to get out of anything. But God is saying here, I can get the dye out. Your sins are like scarlet. It's like, it's like wool that's been stained. But I can make it clean. I can make it pure. He literally restores us to purity. He takes us from being a harlot and makes us a virgin again. I know a testimony of a gal, real life testimony of a gal. Heard the testimony, I wasn't there. Heard the testimony that she had lived a promiscuous lifestyle, came to Christ, 
and was being dated by a guy that was a born-again believer and, and a strong one since his youth, and he had, not, he had not involved himself in relationships with other women, but she wanted to be pure. And that was a cry of her heart, Lord, I want to be pure. I want to be pure for this relationship. And you know what God did? Literally, he restored her virginity in the physical realm as a reflection of what he had done in the spiritual realm. That's how restored we are. Isaiah 43, 26 in the Passion, I, yes, I am the one and only who completely erases your sins. Never to be seen again. I will not remember them again. Freely I do this because of who I am. God is not this cosmic, angry person who's waiting to bring the hammer down on you. And we all have times in our lives when we're walking through something and we really have that question. Can I bring this one? Can I bring this one? Because the power of shame and the power of guilt can be so powerful. We don't know if we can actually bring it. But everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And that one to whom we give an account is loving, merciful, kind, gracious, and compassionate. And more than anything else, he forgives us utterly, completely, and entirely. So as we celebrate his birth at this Christmas season, we celebrate his names, Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus, the one who saves people from his sins. Will you all stand with me and we'll pray. Papa, thank you. I, I just believe there's people here today that there's something that's been dogging them. Something that's been there for a while, and if they were to look at it a little bit more closely, we'd see there's, there's a guilt. There's a shame that's associated with it, or there's some condemnation that keeps coming up. And you want to say to them, as far as the east is from the west, you've confessed this, you've repented it, this is how far I've removed that from you. And since I no longer see it, I invite you to no longer see it. It's no longer a reality in your life. It no longer dominates. It no longer controls you. And you need to tell the enemy to get out. Get out of my face. Get out of my life. You can't bring this. I am listening to the wrong voice. I am listening to the voice of darkness and not the voice of light. I am listening to the voice of condemnation, guilt, and shame, and I'm not listening to the voice of love, compassion, and mercy. So I pray for anyone here today that's in that place, that those chains can fall off, those prison doors can be opened, and that guilt, shame, and condemnation no longer characterize their relationship with you, but freedom, liberty, and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas, you all. Thank you for joining us today. Harvest Valley Worship Center is called to be a refuge for healing and a launch pad for transformation. If this message impacted you today, please let us know in a comment, or you can email us at media at hvwc.com. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to connecting with you.